All right, well, good morning. I got to tell you, when I saw the songs that we were going to be singing this Sunday, I texted Ryan, I'm like, oh, oh, baby, like, this is going to be good, you know? And I don't know if oh, baby is like from the 70s, but if it is, just go with me, all right? Just, it worked for me, and he understood, so that's all I needed to know. And next week, as I said last week, by the way, we get to do this twice, or at least I do. Uh, so the demand for uh, in-person worship has exceeded our ability to do this at one service, and so we are going to 9 and 11. Yeah, it's awesome. Very, very exciting. Uh, we are going to continue to understand that our primary, or at least our, our largest, let's say, audience is going to continue to be coming to us through these cameras that we have here in this room, and we are grateful for the ability to do that. I do want to say that the virtual world has created a need for virtual volunteers, and so if you are good at these kind of things, we need your help like yesterday. So if you would go to Isabel at reavistachurch.com and just say, hey, you know what, I'm, I can do this kind of thing, and I'm willing to talk to you guys about that, we'd really, really appreciate it. Uh, that would be hugely helpful to us, and it would continue to allow us to do this. And if you are following us online um, and you have not connected with us yet, please do that. We've got a Connect card on our free phone app, which I hope that you already have, but if not, please get. And we have a Connect card on our website that allows you to kind of reach out and go, okay, here's who I am, here's my information, and then we can sell it to other people and make money and stuff like that. But we're not going to do that. Um, just kidding. We, we, we don't do that, and we don't barrage you with a bunch of stuff either. But we can help you take the next step, be that Discover Rio be that our essentials class that's going on right now. Uh, There are all kinds of resources and things that are happening through the life and body of this church that we would love to help you avail yourself with. And it, it might just be Alpha. You're like, you know what, I'm still exploring the Christian faith. Step one, Alpha this Thursday night. Or if you're a lady, you can do it Tuesday at lunchtime. So we'd love to have you join us. But as Winston said, we are continuing today in a study that we're calling Jesus is Greater. And here is the kind of unusual way in which we're going about it. You would think that if we're going to look at the greatness of Jesus, we would go to the part of the Bible that we call the New Testament, which is the part of the Bible that is written after the birth of Jesus, after the life of Jesus, after the suffering and then death and then burial and resurrection of Jesus. And it's not what we're doing. We're actually going into the part of the Bible that was written at least bare minimum 430 years before he's born and sometimes a few thousand years before he's born which seems weird, but why can we do that? What authorizes us to do that? Jesus does. He's like, I am God made man. I am God. And by my spirit, I have written not just this part of the Bible, but that part of the Bible. And I've written it in such a way that if you know what you're looking for, you can find me all over the pages of the other two thirds of the scriptures. Think about that. It's like he gives us a flashlight and says, all right, now go looking for me in the Old Testament. And you're like, there he is. And there he is. And there he is. And there he is. And there he is. Like he's all over the place. It's just turn the lights on in the room. We can see him. He's everywhere. And we see him today in the life of a woman named Hannah. And here's what Hannah's going to teach us. She might teach you other things. That's between you and the Spirit. But the one thing I want you to walk away with is this. Hannah's going to come to us and she's going to go, okay, guys, let me tell you something you didn't need to come to church today to know. Life is hard. We're just going to start with that. Life is hard, but... Through faith in Jesus, who is infinitely greater than any hardship that any of us is ever going to face, who is himself the sovereign Lord in charge of every circumstance and every detail of every one of our lives, who designs our lives to include hardships. Charles Spurgeon said that if there was a better life for you, then that's the one you would be living because God would have given you that instead. Think about that. Life is hard, but through faith in Jesus... You belong to a God who uses your hardships, but to what end? Because here's what it's not. 
It's not to make you bitter, and yet that's what happens, isn't it? I mean, one of the images that I want you to be thinking, and the biblical writer gives it to us, we'll see this in a second, is that your heart, your soul, if you will, is sort of like a jar, and it's full of something, isn't it? And it's full of a lot of somethings and a lot of times, but what happens as life disappoints us, as we become dejected and despondent and despairing and depressed, and all D words, as we become resentful, there's a different one, as we become angry, as it doesn't go for us the way that we want it to go for us, as God doesn't make it go for us the way that we're trying to get him to make it to go for us. That jar begins to fill. Ultimately, with this thing called bitterness, this this poisonous liquid-like thing, and when it gets to the top and you make a move, it spills over. It spills over into your marriage. It spills over into your relationships. It spills over into your attitudes and your perspectives, into the way that you view the world. It spills over like this, this poisonous thing called bitterness spills into the bloodstream of the whole of your life, and it affects you and everybody connected to you. It is not good. Life is hard, but through faith in Jesus, you belong to a God who uses your hardships not to make you bitter. In fact, he gives you release for that. You can pour that out at his feet, but instead, he uses your hardships to humble you, to break you, to bring you to himself in a state of total surrender, a place in which you're finally coming to God and saying, look, I'm not trying to make you my servant. I'm not trying to be your master. I'm not trying to enlist you in my program. I, have, I don't have this beautiful plan for my life that I really, I mean, if I'm just going to be honest, want you to come along and facilitate and make happen for me. But instead, I'm here broken as I am. I got all these pieces of me all over the place that I can't put together again. I've just put them in a bag. I'm bringing them to you. I'm going to lay them at your feet. And I'm going to say, I'm here differently today. So my prayer is not, God, do for me what I want you to do for me. My prayer is, would you put me back together again and then use me to do for you what you want me to do for you? See the difference? It isn't little. It's huge. And it's the difference between... Bitterness and blessing, really. I mean, the reality is that if we could make God our servant, and he did everything for us that we wanted him to do for us, we'd still be disappointed. You know, people who make it all the way to the top of the mountain, that they've been trying to get all the way to the top of the mountain of, and they think, when I get to the top of the mountain, that's going to be the ultimate. That's going to be the thing. Talk to them, because when they get to the top of the mountain, they're like, you're kidding, right? Like, this is it. God's like, I've got a mountain for you. I'm going to have a better plan. I'm going to use your hardship as long as it takes, I guess, to get you to a place where you quit on your plan, where you, where you give up your purposes, where you stop trying to control your own life and run your own universe, where you realize that all that does is, is break you into pieces and where you gather up the pieces and you bring them to me and you go, okay, I, I've obviously made a mess of this. I can't cure this. I can't fix this. I cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So here are all my pieces. Put me back together again, but for you. That's the difference. So if you're familiar with the story of the life of Hannah, as Winston said, she becomes the mother of Samuel, who becomes this great priest, this great prophet, this great judge in Israel, the last of the judges who transitions into the king. So you know right now that her story ends well. But how does she get there? Because it doesn't start well, at least not by her estimation. It starts in the painfulness of barrenness. We see this again and again and again with these great women in the Bible. We see them suffering barrenness, and in Hannah's case... 
It's not just a barrenness that lasts for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months or even a couple of years. When you read the story, you realize, good grief, this woman has been suffering with this for years upon years upon years upon years upon years, years in which her husband, Elkanah, who was a good man and a godly man and who loved her desperately, tried in every way he could think to comfort her in her barrenness and none of it worked. So she felt misunderstood and alone. In years in which her rival, this woman named Panina, regularly ridiculed her and demeaned her and put her down in this most painful of thing, that is to say, in her barrenness. And you're like, well, who is that? Like, why is she a part of this story? And what's wrong with Elkanah? And why doesn't he go, hey, get out of our lives and leave my wife alone and protect her? Well, it's a little bit complicated if you're Elkanah because... Penina is his second wife, and I know I said that he was a good guy, so let me explain why, at least back then, that was okay. He has the second wife because a man in that day needed a son and preferably many children. An Israelite in that day had an allotment of land and he had a name that died if he did not have a son to take on his name and to inherit his land. Otherwise, it would just go into the estate of his brothers. You get the idea? And so that's paramount. And also, these people were all farmers. It's an agricultural society. More kids, more work to be done, more profit, more all of these things. Like, children were a major necessity to the point where it was understood culturally and accepted that if for whatever reason you could not have children with the wife you loved, you could take a wife of utility Ouch. For both of them, ouch. And with that wife of utility, you could have the children that wife number one who you loved couldn't, couldn't produce for you. So what that means is that Elkanah is a guy who has two wives. He has Hannah, who has all of his love and none of his children. And he has Penina, who has none of his love but all of his children. And that sets up massive dysfunction in his home. Elkanah is a guy who takes a lot of long camel rides all by himself, I'm pretty sure. You know, I mean, like you find polygamy in the Bible and, you know, and the Bible speaks condemningly of it. It's dysfunctional in every example that you find it. It's not the design. It's a perversion of the design. But it sets these women up as, as rivals and it creates in each of them great Bitterness. Bitterness at each other. Probably bitterness at Alcana for not properly negotiating all of this all of the time. Good grief. And bitterness with the Lord. Why? Because neither one of them is able to get God to do for them what they want him to do for them. Hannah's over here going, look, I mean, how many years do I have to ask for a son? Like, I keep saying, hello, remember me? Like, notice the pieces. Like, I think I've got the cure and this is it. Like, I need a son. And Penina's over here going, how do you think it feels being the wife of utility? Not good. Please turn my husband's heart toward me in affection, not in function. At no time of year was Hannah's suffering more severe than when her family, meaning Hannah with no kids, Elkanah with two wives, Penina with all her kids and probably some servants that they brought with them is my guess. 
made their annual trip up to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle, it's referred to here as the temple, uh, was located. And they would go up to make sacrifices in worship to God. And what that means, practically speaking, is they went out on the farm and they scoured their flocks and herds and they looked for the bulls and for the goats and for the lambs that were most flawless, most perfect, the very best of what they had. And then they would take those animals with them and they would bring them up to the tabernacle and there... They would sacrifice them. They would cut the throat. They would bleed them out. They would consume them in flame. And the idea is that they were saying, we are guilty of sin against you, God, and we can't fix it. We need an innocent one to come and be sacrificed in our place. So take a lamb. It's all prefiguring. It's all telling one story. It's the story of the one whose name is Christ. His name is Jesus. He's greater. Every one of these sacrifices is going, the lamb's coming, the lamb's coming, the lamb's coming, the lamb's coming. Jesus shows up on the scene. John the Baptist says, and there is the lamb of God who takes away to the sin of the world. But what this means, practically speaking, is if you lived back then, you know, and you were one of the animals on the farm, you didn't want to make this trip, you know, like they're all confused. Jim left and he never returned. Like I, it happens every year. I thought I was going to go and then I skinned my knee and they left me behind. But if you were an Israelite who, like Hannah, grew up doing this year after year after year after year after year, you knew some things about sacrifice, then I think it would be helpful for us to rehearse. Like, so for example, you knew that sacrifice is a part of worship. Ryan just talked about that when we did the offertory. I really thought that was great. I mean, hey, that's what that's about. It is the most uncomfortable for some people part of the whole service. It's the part that makes you skeptical. It's the part that makes you go, oh, so this is what this is really about. No. God comes to us and says, I am the God who gives you all that you have. I'm going to let you keep 90%. I'm going to ask you regularly in worship to give me the other 10% because I want you regularly to be reminded that I am the one in whom you find your identity, not things. I am the one in whom you find your safety and security, not things. Man, the pull of it is so strong. God's like, look, I know that's probably my primary rival. So we're going to make this a part of worship. Sacrifice is a part of worship. That's the first thing. The second thing is these people understood that in in sacrifice, okay, you're required to bring your very best. They're not going out on the farm and going, hey, we got a lame goat, bring that one. We've got this unruly sheep and she's constantly leading other sheep astray. All right, we got to get rid of her anyway. Let's bring that one, you know. What else can we get rid of? We'll give that to the Lord. Oh, no, no, no. Very best, but the third one is really the killer for this story. These people understood that sacrifice was an all-in commitment, man. They understood that the animals that went with them to Shiloh did not come home, and they knew why. Why does that matter in this story? Because Hannah will conceive, and she will have a son, and then what will she do with her son? She will bring him to Shiloh, and at the temple she will sacrifice him. And that doesn't mean that he will die. That's not what I'm talking about. She's not going to cut his throat. He's not going to get burned up in an altar. That's not the point. But she is going to do this in a way that satisfies all three of these things. She's going to do this in worship to God. She's going to do this, and she's bringing her very best. Can we just agree on that? But then in addition to that, it's an all-in commitment. Like she's going to bring him, and then she's going to leave him there at the age of three, four, or five years old with Eli the priest, and then she's just going to back away. And then she's going to go home. Think about that. 
And then ask yourself, what in the world got that woman to the place where she would surrender to that degree? And the answer is easy. Now, it's not easy to experience, but it's easy to see. The answer is hardship. It's years and years and years and years and years and years of going to the temple and saying, God, give me a son. 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 How many times do I need to ask this? God, give me a son. It'll cure all my problems. God, give me a son. It'll, it'll satisfy my heart in ways that nothing else will. God, give me a son. It will restore my status. God, give me a son. It will shut up my rival. God, give me a son. It will make my husband happy. God, give me a son. And finally, she comes, and this is the story. This is the time she does it. She's like, that's it. I'm picking up all the pieces of my life. I've been broken. I'm going to put them in a bag. I'm going to bring them to the Lord. I'm going to set it before. I'm going to pour out all of my bitterness because it's all the way full. And every time I move, it's spilling out. It's poison. And I'm going to say, God, use me to give you a son. Use me, my body, to give you, God, a son. That sounds familiar. Jesus is everywhere in all these stories. So Hannah and her family travel up to Shiloh. They worship the Lord. They make all of their sacrifices. They sit down to have their sacrificial meal. Penina does what Penina does. She ridicules Hannah because Elkanah, the husband, favors her. He tries to make up for the fact that she has no kids by giving her twice as much food, and everybody gets to see that, and all that does is provoke her rival pretty foreseeably. You know, and then she gives it to Hannah, and then Hannah's miserable, and her husband, and he just goes for a long camel ride. And we sit, we read in First Samuel one verse nine that after they, meaning that whole family, had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose and she went to the temple this time not to ask God to do for her what he what she wanted Him to do for her, but to offer herself, such as she is, to the Lord. It says, now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And then it says, Hannah was deeply distressed. What it says in the original language is that she was bitter of soul. And notice what she does with it because she doesn't just say, I'm keeping this, I'm treasuring this. I'm going to let this continue to spill out into my life. She pours it out before the Lord. It says she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. Here it is. Your soul like a big jar, bitterness like the liquid in it. This time, she's like, no, I'm emptying this out. This this is going to go. She pours it out before the Lord finally and fully, and then she vows a vow. It says of total surrender. She said, oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and remember is one of my favorite biblical words because it's not just a word of memory. That's how we read it. You know, it's like God has forgotten Hannah, hasn't thought about her in a while, and she's jumping up and down going, hey, don't forget me. You know, like, I mean, there's an aspect of memory to it, but it's a word of action. Think about the word, remember. What is she saying? I think she's saying, listen, the life that you have ordained for me, let's not miss that has broken me into pieces. The the members of my person are just laying all around me on the ground by your design. And I'm now going to surrender them all to you. I'm going to stop trying to put them together for myself. I'm going to stop thinking that I've got a better plan and ask you to put them together in accordance with my plan. 
I'm going to gather them up. I'm going to drop them off at your feet. I'm going to pour out all my bitterness for all of the ways I feel like you have disappointed me. If we're honest, that's really what we're saying. And I'm going to ask you to remember me for you. Put me back together, God, for you. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, And not forget your servant. Don't leave me laying here in pieces. But will give to your servant a son. Then what will I do? I will treasure him. I'll be thankful for him. I'll raise him up to be a great kid. I'll I'll allow him to fill all the places in my heart that truthfully only you can fill. And I'll be so thankful that you made life go for me. No. No, then I will give him back to the Lord is the idea all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head, which is just another way of saying he's going to be dedicated to you from birth. And remember, this is a woman who understood what sacrifice meant. Sacrifice is worship. I'm going to do this in worship, Lord. Sacrifice is bringing my very best. I mean, we don't even need to discuss that. Clearly, that's what she's doing. And sacrifice is an all-in commitment. Like, I'm going to drop this kid off after I wean him, which back then was three, four, or five years of age, and then I'm going to back away, and I'm going to go home. And he's not ever coming home with me again. And no sooner does she make this vow than is her vow tested because she's immediately given insight into the heart of the man that she's just vowed to leave her little boy with. And it's not a good look. It says in verse 12 that as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the high priest of Israel, who, by the way, had two notoriously wicked sons, that Eli himself was rebuked by God for not having corrected, not having raised right. So not the model parent in Israel, and all Israel knew it, including, I'm sure, Hannah. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, for Hannah was speaking in her heart, and so only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard, and therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. He mistakes her piety for wickedness, her prayerfulness for drunkenness. He completely misreads the the whole deal. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you, woman. And Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit, and I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have been pouring out the bitterness that I've been storing up in my heart for years before the Lord. She pleads with him. She says, Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of the great anxiety, out of my great vexation. And then Eli, who realizes his mistake, answered, and he says, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him, which God did. She conceives, she has a son, she names him Samuel, it means heard of God, and then three to five years later, we read that, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought Samuel to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Why does he add that detail, whoever's writing this? Why? Because he's just going, don't forget about that. Don't miss that. This is not some you know, 18-year-old kid that you're dropping off at college with a phone and a, and a computer and a car and a credit card. You know, like, oh, all else fails. Get a flight home. You know, like, that's not what we're dealing with. 
Picture a little boy that she's walking up with and introducing to this big scary man. And now she's going to leave him. He says, and the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman, you might remember me, who is standing here in your presence. And you thought that I was drunk, but then I corrected you and then you got it right. Praying to the Lord for this child, I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And then I think it gives a nod to the dad here. I think that he's the he. It says, and he, I think, meaning Elkanah, worshipped the Lord there. In other words, Elkanah did not go, what are you talking about? We're not dropping our son off with this guy. It's crazy. No, no, he trusted in his wife's faith. It's remarkable. He supported this as from the Lord. He saw the miracle and went, I get it. Unless you think that Hannah was, you know, just miserable the rest of her life, or even in this moment, I'm sure she had her moments. There's, that's unavoidable. But the next 10 verses of, of 1 Samuel is her song. She sings, she rejoices, she thanks the Lord. She's something. So what's the moral of the story? Because this is what the moral of the story isn't. If you're going to write anything down, write this down. Uh, the moral of the story is not drop your son off at the church with the pastor, okay? It's not it. I'm done. Not happening. And it's not that you can make deals with God. God, give me a Ferrari, and then I'll drive it to church every week. Ridiculous. She lays her stuff down. All her passions, desires... And she says, what can I do for you? That's different. Use me to give you a son. I think the moral of the story is that life is hard, but through faith in Jesus, whose story, by the way, is all over this story. He's the supernaturally conceived one. He is the one who from conception is dedicated unto God. He's the one whose mother, when she hears of his approach, of his conception, surrenders her body wholly unto the Lord to give God a son, who rejoices in song. We call it the Magnificat. And he is himself the great sacrifice, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the point is that he is infinitely greater than all of our hardships. The point is that he's designed all of our hardships. The point is that he's controlling all of our hardships. The point is that if there was a better life out there to do in me what God wants to do in me or to do in you what God wants to do in you, that's the life he would be sovereignly designing and giving to you in love. So life is hard, but through Jesus you belong to a God who uses your hardships not to make you bitter. He says, no, no, let that out. Let let me have that. Just, Just pour that out at my feet. Let's get that out of you but to bring you to himself in total surrender, to get you, to get me, to get all of us to a place in which we go, okay, I got it, I get the point, I'm I'm fractured, I'm in pieces, you've done this to me, thank you so much, it's been so fun and I appreciate it a lot. Wink, wink. But really, I trust your heart. So I'm going to bring to you the pieces that I can't can't fit. And I'm going to quit asking for me and I'm going to start asking for you. So I'm here, Lord, now, to be your servant. I'm here, Lord, now to do your bidding. I'm here, Lord, now 
to do what you want me to do. That's why I'm here this time. It's different. God, give me a son. You know what? No, forget that. Let's do this. God, use me to give you a son. What does God want to use you to give to him? Because whatever that is, is the most joyful, blessed arrangement for everyone. So I'm going to close with three questions and two challenges. The first question is, what do you want God to do for you that he's not doing, darn it, and it's causing hardship in your life? It's easy, isn't it? We got that one? Okay, question number two. What is that hardship producing in you? I mean, if you're honest, like, you know, you're looking in the jar, what's in it? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it anger? Is it resentment? Is it all of the above plus bitterness? It's spilling out here and it's spilling out there and here and there and everywhere. And it's a pretty familiar condition. Everybody is stricken with it. God's like, you don't have to be stricken with that. But you do need to surrender to get out of it. So what does God want you to you to do for him? What does he want you to lay down in sacrifice, knowing sacrifice is worship? It requires your best, and it's an all-in commitment. What is it? Is it your marriage? Is it your singlehood? Is it your money? Is it your business? Is it your hopes or plans or dreams or ambitions? Is it a child? What is it that God wants you to surrender to him? Because it seems, as you follow the pattern of this song, that that's the release of bitterness and the beginning of music, of song, of rejoicing, of all of these things that Hannah experiences and shows us. So what do you want God to do for you that he's not doing that's causing you hardship? What's that hardship producing? And then what does God want you to do for him? And then two challenges. And the first one is, I did it last week. I said this last week, find your one. In other words, make the sacrifice in worship, even if it's difficult, to find one person in your life that you're already in authentic relationship with, that you are going to love no matter what. If you come to Jesus, I'll be happy. If you don't come to Jesus, I'll still love you. Relationship doesn't change. And make the sacrifice of beginning that spiritual conversation and use the church to help you. That's why we're here. We provide things like Alpha so that you can invite your friend into a safe conversation where they're not going to get you know, pressured or beat up or you know, any of those kinds of things to have the ability to explore that, invite them into that, go with them. It's on Zoom. It's super easy. Invite them to watch a church service with you and, uh, you know, and talk with them afterwards, which actually now as I'm saying that, I'm thinking maybe somebody did that and right now their one is going, oh, crud, I'm the one, right? Like, I'm your, I'm your one. <laughs> you invited me and he just outed you and I'm your one. And you know what? What a privilege to be your one. What does that mean? What does it communicate? It means I treasure you so much that I, I want to share the most treasured thing in my life with you. I'm going to love you one way or the other. Find your one. Find your one. And the second thing I want to invite you to do, and I think this will be particularly helpful as we move into the next 40 days, is join us for the next 40 days in personal worship. Make the sacrifice of whatever you have to sacrifice 
to join us in personal worship. It's on our app. The app is free. It comes to you every single day. It's really self-explanatory, but it's going to include a 40-day prayer journey on fear and on anxiety at the bottom. So you'll see verses where you learn to pray the promises of God. And there's a sample prayer in the event that you're going, I don't know how to pray the promises. Read the prayer and, and pray that or your version of it. It's going to take us through the election all the way to the end of the week of Thanksgiving. Kind of well-timed, I think. Targeted, again, at fear and anxiety. And I want to challenge you to find one other person to do that with. And maybe it's somebody you're married to. Maybe it's a son or a daughter or a parent or whatever. A friend, somebody in your community group. And maybe you're going, I don't have anybody I can do this with. Okay, well, let us know that. Go to prayer at riovistachurch.com and we'll try to pair you up with someone that would be good. And all you got to do is check in once a week and say, all right, so how's your prayer journey going? How can I pray for you? Here's how you can pray for me. Maybe you pray together over the phone or whatever. And you move forward. So what do you want God to do for you that he's not doing that's causing you hardship? What effect is that having? How is that impacting your soul? Because it's designed to bring you to surrender. So what's your Samuel? What do you need finally to go, okay, Lord, that's it. I got it. I don't, I, I don't have too many pieces left, so you know, let's, let's not even go. You don't need to, don't need to shatter me any further. Like I, It's a severe mercy meant to bring healing. So here I am, all my pieces, all my stuff. Here's my Samuel. I'm here for you. Let's pray about that. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have a supernatural word from another world in the Bible. We thank you that as we open its pages, God, we find remarkably, and it speaks to its supernatural nature, the pattern of the life of Christ in such unmistakable ways that there's no way that over the course of 2,000 or so years that all of these different people from all of these different places and all of these different backgrounds and whatever wrote all of these different stories that tell your story and that hold before us the greatness of the Son of Mary, of the Son of God, who is Jesus. Come to the world that he might be fractured, that his body might be torn, that he might in sacrifice in our place do for God what God wanted him to do for God, which is what? It's pay the penalty that we might be one to him, that we might be healed by him, that we might be brought back by him, that we might be repurposed by him, that we might know him in relationship and in love forever and ever and ever, amen, that we might have a God who takes the difficult things that come to every person everywhere and redeems them by bringing us to him. So tell us what our Samuel is and give us joy and faith to bring him to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.